0: All right, so Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, going down to chapter 3, verse 6. And I'm going to read this for us. When Cephas, that's Peter, by the way, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And this, by the way, is the Apostle Paul talking. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so there's our passage. It's okay if you're confused right now, by the way because it's a bit of a confusing chapter, (laughs) and we jumped in right at the middle. But basically what we've been doing, so we've been in the middle of an overview of the whole Bible, and we're now finally at the, the tail end of this overview. We're looking at the New Testament letters, and to get into the New Testament letters, what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks is looking at a couple of themes in those letters, and we've been looking at those themes kind of through the lens of what does... What does Jesus mean? You know, the Gospels tell you what Jesus did, what Jesus said, but what does Jesus mean? What's the significance of his death on the cross, of his resurrection? And so to get at that, we've been looking at Jesus' significance, particularly through one critical aspect of who he is, and that is uh, the aspect of identity. How does what Jesus did change your identity? How does it give you a whole new kind of identity? And so uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the, the truth that, Because of what Jesus has done, we've been declared righteous. And if you wanted to get all theological tonight, you could use the word justification. Uh, Justification is a a fancy theological word that means that Jesus, God, has has shared his righteousness with us. So the the example that's uh, handy to remember is that it's kind of like... Um, well, if you're a student, it's like a report card. If you're working a job, it's like a resume. You know, If you're applying for a job, you have to send them your resume, and it has your, your whole performance record. Now, the problem is, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you were to look at your record, your resume, it wouldn't be the kind of resume that would get you a job, and it certainly wouldn't be the kind of resume that would put you in right standing with God. But the gospel says... That God has swapped his resume for our resume. So on the cross, Jesus took all of our sin, all of our punishment that we deserved. He experienced the full weight of God's righteous wrath against sin in our place. And instead, we got Jesus' righteousness. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't just see our performance record. He sees Jesus' performance record. And so that means that we can, in God's sight, be forgiven. We can be clean, we can be holy, because God has justified us. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we kind of went one further than that, and looked at uh, you know, another theological term, adoption, the fact that it's not just that salvation is a status, it's a relationship, and that because of what Jesus has done, we can have a new relationship with God, we can know him as Father. Uh, so, for example, remember, uh, this is after Jesus is resurrected, uh, when he has a conversation with Mary, uh, and Mary, um, at first he thinks she thinks Jesus is the gardener, but then realizes it's Jesus, and and she's so excited she just gives Jesus a you know a gigantic hug basically, and, and Jesus has to has to say, you know actually wait before before you 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 um, get too comfortable like I have a mission for you I need you to go tell the other disciples that I've risen from the dead and here's what he here's what he tells her to say to them, uh, John twenty verse seventeen. Uh, He says, uh, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. So because of what Jesus has done, we now have the ability to have a whole new relationship with God. We can know him as father and we can have an identity as children of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. But here's what we're looking at this week. Uh, This week, I want to address a pretty important question uh, that might have come up as you've been thinking about what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And the question is, what about sin? What about sin? You know, if, if forgiveness, if receiving God's righteousness, if being adopted as God's children, if all of that stuff is just so great, then why do I still sin? You know, you might be, you might be asking yourself, why am I still stuck in whatever I'm stuck in? You know, why am I still addicted? Why is my life still so broken? And if Jesus is totally irrelevant to the actual things that we're struggling with, then the gospel hardly can seem like good news. <laughs> so, so what does it look like to actually explore like Jesus' significance for the things that we're struggling with, like right here, right now? And in fact, uh, once again, I want to I want to do something a little unconventional, and I just want you to I want I want to pause here, and I want you to just you yourself just ask what 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 is one struggle that you are currently experiencing? It could be, you know, like an actual sin that you just are trying to fight and can't quite be rid of. It could be um, like a pattern of behavior. It could be a form of addiction. I just want you to, you don't even have to write it down. You don't have to share it with anybody. But I want you just to, in your mind, just call to mind at least one thing that you right now are struggling with. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lust, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lack of trust in God, uh, trusting his good plan for your life, maybe it's lack of desire for God, maybe it's unforgiveness, or it could just be good old-fashioned (laughs) self-centeredness, that's probably one that I can relate to. So the question is, what about all of those areas? Can Jesus actually meet us in those areas? Can he really change us in those areas? Uh, what does the gospel actually have to say about our sin and our struggles? And the answer, of course, is that the gospel has everything to say about our sin and our struggles. Um, that There's no part of our lives that the gospel doesn't touch because the gospel changes everything. And uh, just just to get a little theological again. We're not afraid of theology at Thrive. We're not afraid of going deep into the Bible. I want to put up a little diagram on the screen um, with these these three theological words that um, I just find kind of helpful for breaking down what we're talking about. Um, Luke, this is, the, I think it's the first slide with words on it. If you can see it there. Yeah, okay, so these three words, justification, sanctification, glorification, So that first column, justification, this refers to being set free from the penalty of sin. And this is something that's happened in the past. So Jesus has already died. He's not going to die again. And so that sacrifice has already been made. All of the penalty for your sins that you have done or are doing or will do, all of that has been completely dealt with and paid for on the cross, past tense, it's done. You know, It's been said that there's only two religions in the world, the religion of do and the religion of done. Christianity is the only religion of done that says it's all been taken care of, all been paid for already by Jesus. And so one sense of salvation in Scripture is past tense salvation, justification. And then in the far right column, there's another word, glorification. So sometimes you'll see Scripture use salvation in that sense. So like, for example, in Romans 13, it says, our salvation is nearer now Than when we first believed. It's future tense. So this is looking ahead to what you might call glorification. And this refers to when in the future we'll be set free from the very presence of sin in heaven. But then there's the middle one. And there's this word here, sanctification. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Let's say you're a Christian. How do you walk through life and deal with sin in your life? You know, how do you become more like Jesus? The answer is sanctification. And that refers to what you might call present tense salvation. So in 1 Peter, it says you are are receiving, present tense, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So sometimes salvation is used in the Bible in a present tense kind of way. And so what sanctification is, it's what happens in this life as God sanctifies us by setting us free from the power of sin. So we no longer have to let sin rule over our lives. And that is is one of the things that this passage is about. So you've got past tense being set free from the penalty of sin, present tense set free from the power of sin, future tense set free from the very presence of sin, and we're focusing on the middle one. Uh, so really quick, uh, we're going to get into this passage. I just want to give you a quick bit of context just so we know what it's talking about. Uh, so, so Galatians, this is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. It's written to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. This is like modern-day Turkey. Uh, and and here's a group of people that have actually become Christians. They've, they've come to believe the gospel and accept it. But the problem is, sometime later, uh, there's a bunch of false teachers who come to the area and, and they begin to teach the Galatians that if you want to really be a good Christian, then you have to follow the Old Testament law. You have to circumcise yourself. You have to obey these rules, eat these certain kinds of foods. And you might think, oh, you know, okay, well, what is, you know, what's the big deal? Like, so what if they want to kind of change their diet and eat kosher, right? Uh, but Paul comes out swinging. <laughs> the book of Galatians is the strongest, most impassioned letter that Paul ever wrote. And he unreservedly condemns what the Galatians are doing. He actually says that what they're doing, is it's not just like a watering down of the gospel. It's a complete rejection of the gospel. And we're going to see why in a minute. Uh, but what I want to do is just like, I want to set up kind of what's happening in this particular passage so this is, this is a section of the letter where Paul is trying to show the Galatians that unlike the false gospel they've received from these false teachers, the gospel that Paul originally preached to them is trustworthy. They can trust that it actually is the, the real gospel. And so in chapters 1 and 2, uh, he does that by rehearsing for them in all these details, uh, kind of first of all, how... Um, the gospel that Paul preached came to him. And and he makes the point that it came to him straight from God. So he got it straight from the source. And then kind of the second thing he does in the first two chapters is he shows how the gospel that he preached wasn't changed. It wasn't modified. It wasn't corrupted, whether by him or by another person. So, So therefore, you know, if those things are both true, what he's saying is you can trust that, like, I know what I'm talking about. The gospel really is the gospel. Now, uh, that takes us to chapter 2. One of the things that's really, this is a crazy chapter, by the way, because uh, one of the ways that Paul proves that his gospel hasn't been corrupted, he includes this little story, and it's about an interaction that Paul had with the apostle Peter. Uh, he's called Cephas in this text because that's, it's a Greek version for Peter's name. And the reason it's such a crazy interaction is because it shows how the gospel was almost corrupted by another apostle. <laughs> Like, Peter screws up here. He almost trips and almost stumbles and almost steps out of, of, of the, the kind of the, 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 the actual nature of the gospel. So, just to see what the interaction's about. Look at verse 11. So, it says, uh, when Cephas came to Antioch. So, Antioch. Antioch was a hub for Gentile Christians. So, these are non-Jews who've come to believe in Jesus. Verse 12, you find out that at first, Peter had actually been eating with those Gentile Christians. You know, he knew... That even though the Gentiles don't eat Jewish foods and they they don't keep the Jewish law, that they had been made right with God, not through being Jewish, but through believing in Jesus. The gospel was enough to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one family. But what happened was there were some some probably hardline Jews, you could say. Uh, Here in verse 12 it says, Certain men who came from James... These guys show up, and they begin to kind of intimidate Peter, and Peter stops what he's doing. He steps back, and he no longer eats with the Gentiles. He only eats with the Jews. And in verse 14, look at how Paul calls them out. In verse 14, uh, it starts out with Paul saying, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So in other words, by eating with Jews only, what, what is Peter doing? He's effectively saying to the Gentile Christians, you guys aren't good enough. You guys aren't clean. You guys aren't holy. Your faith in Jesus isn't enough to be acceptable to God. If you want to be acceptable to God, well, you've got to eat these special foods, observe these special rules. And Paul says, no, that's not, I'm sorry, <laughs> I was trying to imitate him. That's not in line with the gospel. <laughs> the only thing that saves you is Jesus. Not obeying the law, not getting circumcised, not anything else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. There's no middle ground. It's either all Jesus or not at all. So that's the context of this passage. I hope hope that kind of sets it up for you. And now let's reconsider our question. Remember the question, how does Jesus, how does the gospel actually change our lives? How does it free us from the power of sin? And really quick, I just want to highlight sort of three things that this passage does to answer that question. It's going to say something about sin, something about ourselves, and then something about Christ. Something about sin, something about ourselves, and something about Christ. Look at... Uh, first of all, look, look at Galatians 2.20. This verse, uh, we're going we're gonna to begin and end with this verse tonight. Because of all the places in the Bible that speak to uh, the victorious life that you as a Christian can have over sin. This verse, if you want one verse tonight, this verse is one of the most important verses on this in the whole Bible. Let me read it. It says, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and I want to start by just noticing one thing in this verse look at the very first part it says I have been crucified with Christ now y'all know what crucifixion means right it means you're dead <laughs> Now, of course, you know, he's not talking about biologically dead because he's the one writing it. He's not actually biologically dead. No, he's saying that if you're a Christian, you've died in a spiritual sense. Or here's another, another passage. This is Romans chapter 6 that just kind of fleshes out a little more what he's saying. So, uh, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you see, it's the same focus. He's saying, you're dead. And why did you die? Well, you died because Christ died. Now, see, the key word here is the word unite. He says, if you've been united with him in a death like his, you'll be also united with him in his resurrection. The Bible doesn't understand salvation as just some kind of abstract set of beliefs. No, it says that when someone comes to believe in Jesus, they are united to Jesus. Everything that Jesus has, we have. Everything that we have, Jesus has. And what that means is that when Christ died, we died. Our old self, the unregenerate nature in bondage to sin, got crucified on the cross. When Christ rose, we rose. We got a new self. We got a whole new heart, a whole new nature. Now think about this. Before, before Jesus, B.C., (laughs) before sin was in our nature. We had no choice but to sin. So it says in Romans 6, 17, you used to be slaves to sin. In other words, there was nothing you could do about it. You couldn't not sin. When Satan says jump, your response would only be, how high? (laughs) That's all you could do. But now, we've been raised with Christ. We have a new nature. We don't have to sin. I want you to hear this. You don't have to sin. Sin doesn't belong to your nature anymore. Now, it's true, Paul will explain this later in Galatians, that there's a war going on. We have the the spirit and the flesh that are waging war against each other. And then, of course, there are parts of us that still want to live for the world and to live for sin and all these things. But it's now a battle that we can win because we have a new nature. We have Christ living in us. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is why Paul's answer to the question, you know, why shouldn't a Christian sin, is just so fascinating. Because his answer is not, you know, oh, a Christian shouldn't sin because don't you know that a good Christian shouldn't sin? You know, he kind of wags his finger and she says, oh, you, know, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that. Or, you know, his answer isn't, you know, oh, if you sin, then, you know, God's going to beat you over the head with a big stick, so you should be really afraid, and, and fear is what should stop you from sinning. No, no, no. The reason that Paul says that Christians shouldn't go on sinning is because dead people don't sin. Dead people don't sin. Sin is no longer natural. We die to that. So, for example, um, imagine, I don't know if any of you guys, like, have any farm experience here? Anyone have any farm experience? Okay, so we've got some farm experience people here. Uh, a pig, you know, what, what do pigs love to do? Pigs love to roll around in the mud. And if you drag that pig out of the mud, it's going to want to go right back to rolling around in the mud. No matter how much you drag it out and clean it up and, you know, try to you know, not make it roll around in the mud, it's going to go right back to rolling around in the mud because it's in the pig's nature. But if you change that pig into a sheep, if you could wave a magic wand and, and do that, if you drag that sheep out, it's not going to want to go back into the mud because, like, if it did, that would be pretty unsheeply, it would be unsheep like. Sheep don't roll around in the mud, it's not a part of their nature. And in the same way, like, you have been changed. You have been changed. If you know Jesus, you have a new nature living in you. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with him. And so there's going to be something in you now that says, I don't want to go back to those old habits. I don't want to go back to those old things. And maybe you still struggle with sin, but now, there's, you know, now you're a sheep. You don't want to go back to the mud puddle anymore. So what that means, of course, it doesn't mean that Christians are sinless. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But even though a Christian isn't sinless, a Christian should sin less. Do you see that? So that means that you, know, you can be a born-again believer and still struggle with sin in your life, but woe to us if we ever make peace with sin. Woe to us if we ever make peace with sin. Sin is common, but if you're a Christian, it's not natural. It's common, but it's not natural. And there are maybe some of you tonight who need to hear the encouragement to not give up on seeing victory over sin in your life. Don't ever, ever make peace with sin. So that's the first thing this passage has to say. It has something to say about sin. And then, second thing, something to say about ourselves, actually. Um... Of course, the question now is, you know, what do you do about sin? How do you actually wage war against it? And what I want to point out here is that this passage shows you that there's a fundamentally wrong way to try to do that. And the wrong way to try to fight sin is to try to fight sin in your own strength. So, verse 20 again, it says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me notice that he doesn't say the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in myself (laughs) he does not say that he says no his whole life is lived looking to Jesus putting his trust in Jesus not his own not his own strength now why can't we fight sin in our own strength you know you might think oh you know I might be able to do this well the reason let let me give you two Number one is that our strength is always going to be ineffective. Um, Luke, could you put up on screen the little circle diagram here? So uh, this little diagram I find helpful because this is what happens when you try to fight sin in your own strength. Let's say that you're struggling with something. And, you know, like we all know that we're not perfect. There's going to be a time when you might relapse or stumble. Well, that leads to feeling guilt and shame about whatever it was. And a lot of times, the natural response to guilt and shame is you try to hide it. You hide it in secrecy. Well, secrecy only increases your sense of isolation, your sense of separation. And the more isolated and the more separated you get, what do you think happens? Then it just becomes all the more easy to fall back into that same sin pattern again. And it becomes a noose that gets tighter and tighter and tighter. So we are not strong enough to fight sin at our own strength. And uh, it's not just that our strength is ineffective, it's that our solutions are ineffective. And, and this is where, um, look at chapter 3, the first three verses there on the, on the handout. Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Paul is just so brilliant here. Because uh, look what he says. So verse 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here's what's behind that question. The Galatians think that first, Jesus saves them. But then, in order to grow, in order to like, fight sin, in order to be sanctified, then it's on them. They have to follow all of the religious rules. They have to obey the law in order for them to grow spiritually. So uh, there's an author named Dane Ortland who's written a book on on sanctification called Deeper, and he has kind of a, a neat little concept in there to describe what the Galatians' problem is. They have an understanding of sanctification that goes like this. They say, Christ, then me. So first Christ saves, but then it's on me to kind of pull up my bootstraps, and live the Christian life in my own strength. And the way that the Galatians do that, the way that we do that, is by looking to the law instead of to Jesus. Looking to the rules for your sense of righteousness and your sense of growth instead of Jesus. But the Bible is so clear. The law cannot sanctify you. The law can't save you. It can't sanctify you. It can't do anything other than show you your need for Jesus, and maybe, like, <laughs> restrain you um, from falling into sin, but it can't actually stop your sin nature from operating. So just let me read you a verse or two on this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. So let me ask you a question. If you are a Christian, in God's sight are you, can you, can you say that you are declared righteous in God's sight? Yes, you can. You've been justified. So uh, when it says that the law is not made for the righteous, is that, is that saying, what, what is that saying? Well, it's saying that the purpose of the law is not to help saved people get better. The, help, the purpose of the law is to help unsaved people be pointed to their need to be saved. Let me show you another verse, Colossians 2. Verses 20 through 23. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that if you're looking to the law, to try to become a better person, if you're trying to like grow through just looking at all the rules and saying, I'm going to obey all those rules. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Well, first of all, you're deluded. Second of all, it's not going to work. Because you see what he says? Even though you look super impressive, you know, I'm following all the rules. Look at how holy and rigorous I am. He says they lack any value in restraining the flesh. So you might like try to put yourself in a rules straitjacket, but those rules can't change your heart. Only the Spirit can change your heart. And if you actually succeed in obeying the rules, you know what's going to happen? You're going to become puffed up with pride. You're going to say, look at me. I've made way more progress than all those other lousy Christians. You know, I'm miles ahead of them. And actually, you're going going—you're miles behind them, actually, because now you're just filled with pride. Anytime we try to grow in our own strength, we're suffering from legalistic myopia. Me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. <laughs> And that is the very essence of sin. Now, it's really easy to try to justify this. Let me, I'm going to read you a, a quote here uh, from an author that describes this pretty well. So he says, um, a guy named Tim Chester, no one thinks of himself as a legalist. Such persons just think of themselves as someone who takes holiness seriously. After all, it has the appearance of wisdom. But if you want to see a legalist, take a look in the mirror. Deep in the heart of all of us is the proud desire to prove ourselves sin is wanting to live our lives our own way without god the terrible irony is that even uh, that we even want to overcome sin our own way without god the struggle against legalism was not done and stored away 2000 years ago in galatia or 500 years ago at the reformation the battle with legalism takes place every day in our hearts ouch So what, what does this mean? The problem is not with the rules. The problem is with ourselves. The problem is with ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves in our own strength. We can't grow on our, in our own strength. So finally, uh, you know, something about sin, something about ourselves that we can't do it. And then last of all, um, there's one thing more in this passage I want to point out, and it's something about Christ. And this is the place we've got to end. Look, look one last time at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you see how we grow? It's not Christ then me. It's actually Christ in me. We talk about how great it is that Jesus is God with us. You know what's even better? It's God in in us. And that's exactly what the gospel gives. It says that God by his spirit lives in us. If you believe in Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus, that is true of you. And that means that you don't, you can't fight sin just by trying harder or you know, doing more. If you fight sin like that, you're just going to, you're going to go and the, the noose is going to tighten itself around your neck. The only way to grow is to simply let Jesus live his life through you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And how does that work? Well, it means instead of focusing on, you know, I've just got to try so much harder today to love God. Can I suggest to you, maybe the better thing to do is to simply focus on God's love for you. When you dwell on how much Jesus has done for you, when he paid the infinite price on the cost to redeem you from sin, death, and hell. And when you realize that you didn't deserve it, that you were worthy of all of the wrath of God, and that Jesus voluntarily chose to substitute himself in your place because that's how much he loved you, don't you think that that might actually change your heart? Don't you think that actually might make you want to love him more? There was an old Scottish preacher named Robert Murray McShane, and He said, A glance at Christ will save, but it's the gazing at Christ that sanctifies. A glance at Christ will save, but it's the gazing at Christ that sanctifies. Just look at Jesus. Look at what he's done for you. Allow the gospel, all the things we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, let those things work themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart. And you're going to change. And it's going to be God's work in you rather than your own moralistic striving. What would it look like if you had an identity like this? What would it look like if you knew that you are crucified with Christ? You are dead to sin. It's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Let me pray. Lord, just thank you that you have provided a way for us to change. And it's not through our strength, but it's through your power in us that we can deal with sin, that we can look like Jesus, and that we can have hope for living our lives following after you. In Jesus' name, amen.